0: So for those of you who uh, aren't regulars at our monthly Wednesday night services, so Sundays are where we preach sermons, where we go in deep, verse by verse, through um, every word of Scripture. And here on Wednesday nights, we take the opportunity more to teach, to walk through some subjects that, uh, that maybe aren't quite uh, what we would normally cover on a Sunday morning, but are still valuable and worth, uh, worth knowing. And so one of the things that we like to go into are matters of history, edifying things in the past to to know more about that might help us understand our present. Um, And so uh, last month, for those of you who are with us, we got to spend some time doing a very quick blitz through the history of the Reformation, obviously in 45 minutes leaving tons out. That would be wonderful to get into, but giving at least an overview of that time period. And so this time, we're moving a little bit further forward. But for those who were here last month, that foundation actually is helpful in understanding where we're going here today. Uh, if you didn't get a chance to see that, you can go to our uh, church website to our YouTube channel, and the video is up, where you can go watch last months on the Reformation would encourage you to do so. But today, it's November. And I know it's fallen out of favor, but in my mind, it's Thanksgiving season. Uh, to everyone else, Thanksgiving is a day. But when I grew up, at least where I lived, I don't know if this was normal for other guys in my generation from elsewhere, but Thanksgiving was a season. Like you decorate your house with fall stuff and you'd every every day talk about things you were thankful for and at schools would put on pageants performing the the pilgrims and the mayflower and their their feast with the indians and squanto and all the like like it was a season we really got into it we revelled in thanksgiving and i love that i love that because thanksgiving is a biblical Biblical idea, giving thanks, being thankful for all things because we owe all things to God. There is absolutely no good thing you have in this life, no good thing you have in this life at all, that you do not owe gratitude to your Maker for that. And so I, I love Thanksgiving as a season. And so I could think of nothing else I wanted to talk about at the beginning of November coming into Thanksgiving season. Not Christmas time yet. Sorry, guys. We'll get there. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) Um, But uh, then going back and looking at the history of how we got this celebration of Thanksgiving, who these Puritan pilgrims were that we so often remember, though as we're going to see are not actually directly related, or at least in the way we think they are, to how we got the holiday. Um, Well, we'll get there. But uh, the story's a little more complicated than the version... That I and my peers dressed up on in first grade, dressed up as in first grade, and, and put on the pageant of. But it's still rooted in God's providence and history, and very, very worth looking at. Um, and so we're going to look at the first Thanksgiving, how we got our Thanksgiving holiday. We're going to look at these Pilgrims of Plymouth, who they were, what they believed, and what that might mean for us today. Um, but again, like with the Reformation, we've only got 45 minutes, so uh, we're not going to get into everything, but I came better prepared than last time. I came with book recommendations. I should have done that last time. So if you finish up with this and, for, and you actually want to know more, you want to hear the interesting version versus the version that I tell, um, the first book I'd recommend you guys go get is The First Thanksgiving, What the Real Story Tells Us About Loving God and Learning from History by Robert Tracy McKenzie. I've read through this book several times over the last few years. Uh, not every year, but I've, I've gone through it quite regularly. I really enjoy that book. It's a, it's a short, readable, very accessible, not, not uh, a lot of scholarly jargon. It's scholarly in the sense that it's researched well, but it's, uh, it, it, it reads easy, but it's, it's very truthful, it is uh, um, written by a believer who's looking at this from a Christian perspective, and uh, it not only tells us a lot about the events, but it focuses on, from a Christian perspective, how we interact with history, how we learn from people in the past, fallen people like us, living at a different time, who have no a- spiritual authority over us, but yet in some ways we can learn from and interact with and gain from. And so he does a great job in writing that out. Highly recommend the book. If you get done with that one and you're like, "Man, I want to know more than one," we need to meet, meet up. You're my kind of person. I want to have like have dinner with you or something. My wife needs a break from hearing me yammer about history. Maybe you'd want to. But if you're that type of person, you want to go in deeper, then they knew they were pilgrims by John G. Turner. It's written from a secular perspective, but it does a great job of walking through the history and actually taking the theology and beliefs of the pilgrims and the other people involved into consideration and why things played out the way they did. And uh, uh, it's a quality read. So if you want to go dig in even more, that's the second book I'd recommend. All right, preliminaries done. Let's dive in. So first Thanksgiving as we're normally taught to think of it. It's where the pilgrims came over, started the Plymouth Colony, they were helped out by their Native American neighbors, and then finally, after that first big harvest, they came together and had this big celebration, this thank- first Thanksgiving that became the holiday we all celebrate. There's actually a ton of truth in that, that story, by the way. That, that's <clears throat> we're going to see that's not, the, that's not a complete picture. It misses a lot and it gets some things wrong. But that, that general narrative is not untrue. Those events happened. Um, In fact, I want to read for you, I'm actually going to read for you right now, all of the historical documentation that we have about that day that we celebrate, that we remember as the first Thanksgiving. I'm going to read it all to you. We've got time for that. Here we go. I'm going to read everything that we actually know from a firsthand account of, uh, of that event that we think of culturally as the first Thanksgiving. So, our harvest being gotten in, our governor governor sent four men on fowling. That so we might, uh, after a more special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl, with a little help beside, uh, served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations... We exercised our arms. That's firearms, not we did, you know, weights. We exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest, their greatest king, Massasoit, with some 90 men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. Three-day Thanksgiving. You guys want to do that? That'd be cool. Uh, uh, For three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others." That's it. That's all we know. Uh, No other member of the Plymouth Colony found the event worth writing about in a journal or a letter or an account of any kind. It was not remembered and celebrated in years afterwards as an annual holiday. Actually, for reasons that you'll understand more, they they would have theologically been opposed to doing that. but, uh, but this was not, in the minds of the pilgrims, the first thanksgiving. We'll get to that. But this did happen. This was a real event after their first harvest, where they did get together and do these things. But to them, it was not the central event that it's become hundreds of years later. In fact, this one writing of it was quickly forgotten. It was not remembered or discussed until the 1840s when someone rediscovered the document this was written in and republished it with their own note on it saying the first Thanksgiving, which is where we got our cultural idea today that this was the first Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving already existed in most of America as a holiday before that happened, completely disconnected from this story. We celebrated an annual Thanksgiving, but we didn't attach it to the pilgrims in this story. That came later, much later. But this did happen. And this does tell us something about these people. So let's step back and let's tell their story that gets us to this place. And then let's look how this, how, how this arose into our celebration every year and how that maybe can help enrich. I don't want to take away from anybody's Thanksgiving traditions. I want to enrich that and keep it focused where it ought to be, the object of our thanksgiving. God who gives us all things. So, stepping back, after the time of the Protestant Reformation, when leaders across Europe and in Britain we're turning people from all the human traditions. We discussed that last month. If you want the details, go back and watch that lesson. But turning people from human traditions back to the Scriptures, the biblical gospel, the authority of God's Word. And as that was taking hold in England, it happened in a somewhat unique way. Um, see, in England, the church first broke with the uh, Roman Catholicism and the papacy in the Vatican, not a, not first out of theological conviction. First, it was expediency of the King of England who, one, the most popular reason historians will point, will point to, which certainly contributed to it, there was more involved, but uh, desired to get out of a marriage he was in because he couldn't give birth to a male heir to take his place. And uh, the Pope wouldn't let him out. So he took advantage of some of the writings that were circulating and exploited that as a chance to break with the papacy so he could establish himself as the head of the Church of England and could act as he pleased in that area, annul his own marriage. Um, So not the most virtuous beginnings to the Reformation in England. But... Even so, it did, for a time, allow a certain degree of liberty that Protestants elsewhere didn't have to preach biblical truth and attempt to turn English churches toward biblical doctrine. In fact, um, though there were waves where, uh, for example, when the king's daughter Mary became queen, who was a staunch Roman Catholic, turned to persecuting uh, um, Protestants viciously and they had to flee from the country till the end of her reign... Uh, famously known as Bloody Mary. Um, But after that time period, during the reign of Elizabeth, they were all able to return. Yes, several daughters reigned as queen during that time period because, again, no male heir. Um, And so the Protestants were able to return, and they were really able to cultivate a theological foundation of of Protestant theology in this new separate hierarchy. King on top, bishops... Archbishops, very Roman Catholic looking hierarchical structure, but under all of that, a Protestant teaching about the gospel, the authority of the word. In the midst of that, and we could go into this much more, but we've got to move forward to our our main focus. But in the midst of all of that, you had theologians known as the Puritans. They did not want to leave the Church of England. They did not want to break and just run off and start their own churches. But they wanted to see the Church of England more thoroughly reformed, not just in teaching, but in practice. Most of the deba- debates among English Protestants at this time were not dividing over the issues of their theology, what they believe, what the gospel is, what the, who God is, what the core doctrines are. The huge, hostile debates going on at the time were actually over practice. What worship should look like in the church, what the authority structure in the church should be, this very Catholic-looking hierarchy. There were many who, looking at the Scriptures, said, look, that's not what the church looks like in here. We need to get back to a biblical model for how we operate as a church community. And there were a th- so the, there were debates as to what that should look like, and of course the king intervening because he does not want a model to take hold where he is not on top, or in some cases the queen, but the monarch intervening because the monarch wants to be on top of this authoritative structure. So the Puritans, they wanted to see a Reformation that would ultimately bring an end to that hierarchical structure, as well as to many practices that went on during worship services that they saw as biblically inappropriate. And so these were the debates going on. But there were some... Who you might consider among the Puritans, more radical Puritans, who came to the conclusion no, you know what? This entire structure, this edifice, not the people within, it's not indicting that there are no believers there, that we need to restore, but this structure, this ecclesiact- ecclesiastical pyramid is so inappropriate and wrong and the way that they're doing worship in their churches is so incorrect that the, right, the correct move is not to reform this thing. It's just to get out of this thing and gather together as local congregations separate from this huge ecclesiastical structure and have local bodies of biblical believers gathered together in congregations practicing their faith as the scriptures define These came to be known as separatists, or at the time were normally called Brownists because one of the earliest separatists uh, was of the last name Brown. And so the whole, every single one of them began to be called Brownists. Ironically, Brown himself recanted and went back to the Church of England. He didn't remain a separatist, but the movement kept his name. Um, And so they were were, uh, maligned as Brownists, or we would today normally in uh, in historical studies call them separatists because they separated from the Church of England to gather in their own congregations. And here's where our story of the pilgrims begin. In a little farm town named Scrooby in England, one of these separatist congregations was gathered, um, was led by a preacher named John Robinson who was quietly just gathering people in homes and teaching them the word and trying to structure the church and worship God in the way that they were convinced that the Bible taught, but this was illegal at the time. Again, the king does not like any of these Puritan or separatist ideas, and so uh, under King James of uh, um, King James Bible fame, uh, under King James the persecution was particularly great. Um, he did not want any of this taking hold, and. Finally, the Scrooby congregation came to the conclusion that they needed to leave their home and everything they loved behind so that they continue, could continue to worship in freedom. And so they packed up to leave. That's not easy to do, though, because it was actually illegal to just leave the country without government approval. How do I get out? How do we immigrate? We can't go to King James and say, hey, can we leave so we can go be brownists? You okay with that? No, that's going to get you in jail. So they couldn't get legal permission, and so they actually had to hire a ship to smuggle them out. And the first ship they hired took advantage of them, took their money, loaded them all up, and then just went and turned them over to the authorities. Their leaders get arrested. They're back home figuring out what to do next. The prison term was short. They got out, and then they began planning their next escape. Found a more reliable uh, ship captain, made arrangements again, started getting on the boat, and uh, all the men were on, women and children weren't on yet. All of a sudden, ship starts coming in in the distance. It's the authorities who've been tipped off who are coming to arrest them. Well, their more reliable ship captain got spooked, just pulled anchor and headed for Holland, left the women and children behind. All the men are on board, can't get off. Families are sp- split up. And so they had to make arrangements to get their wives and children out while the men went and started their new life in Holland where there was more religious freedom. And so there they went and as they, in waves, got their people there, started their new congregation there, or they, they moved their congregation there, started their new life, their new place of worship there, end up, ended up moving first to Amsterdam then finally to a city called Leiden major center of the textile industry where these former farmers all got jobs working on making clothing and cloth and textiles it was backbreaking work for very little money because they weren't skilled in it and so it was a hard transition economically but they could be free now, we often think they went to America to find their freedom. That's actually not true. They already got their freedom when they made it to Holland. So here's our first kind of change we have to make in the story is they made it to Holland and they were free. They were completely free to practice their faith there. In fact, they were among friends. There were other English separatists who had made it there before them, um, even from the city of Gainsborough, which is only a few miles from Scrooby. These guys knew each other um, from other separatist congregations there. Um, one of those congregations, congregations led by a man named John Smith, uh, other leaders such as, the, such as Thomas Helwes and others, actually eventually came to the conclusion that uh, they studied the scriptures, that infant baptism was not uh, biblically correct, and so became the first English Baptists. There in Holland, these friends of the, we don't often think of the first Baptists and the Plymouth Pilgrims as being. Former neighbors, friends and of the same, but they were. These guys knew each other. Um, and so, so all of this is going on all at the same moment in history, with these separatists that have escaped to find freedom in Holland. They're living life there, but they come across a new challenge they weren't expecting. Freedom has its own difficulties. You see, there in Holland, where there was a lot of freedom. There were a lot of people who lived a more laxed, irreligious life, who simply did not take faith and discipline and piety very seriously. And while they're all working long, hard hours just to make ends meet, their children are becoming very influenced by this, from the pilgrims' perspective, very lax Dutch culture culture around them. So now they have a new fear. And this is the fear that drove them to America. Not the fear of persecution. They'd already escaped that. Their fear was losing their children to the world. They did, they, they did not believe under their current conditions there in Holland, with the work they had to do, the hours they had to put in, the position that they were in, that they were capable of shepherding the next generation well enough Parenting well, raising them well, holding their community together well enough that they could raise up their children in a way that their children would follow in their footsteps and be fully devoted to the Word of God, especially as they understood it. Um, and so, this began to be a serious concern. What can we do? Our whole, the whole reason we left England was so that we could follow our convictions on this. We could worship God rightly. We don't want within two generations to scarcely be worshiping him at all. What do we do? And so they, after a lot of deliberation, came to the hard conclusion that they needed to move to the, unin- oh, the uninhabited by Europeans. They knew that there were other inhabitants there, but the, the, where, to leave Europe and their entire way of life And to go move to an entirely new land where there they would live without the influences that might lead their children astray. While at the same time, this wasn't an idea of we need to just separate from the world. Their writings are filled with the notion that they do have hopes to evangelistically reach the peoples of the new world. It's not that they wanted, and as, we, as we're going to see when they get there, they had tons of contact with the world around them. But the idea was to move to a situation where that world around them would not be a snare leading their children away and where they could perhaps do work that would allow them the liberty to be more involved in their children's lives and shepherding them better. They believed that a life, a very difficult life starting afresh in America would be better for the long-term longevity of their community, their gospel witness, their faithfulness to the Scriptures. And so they made the hard decision to leave everything behind and to go. Now, what uh, what do we normally think their hope was to establish when they got there? What's driving them? We often have this idea that they were hoping to establish a land of religious liberty as we understand that today. Of democracy. Of, of freedom by our modern interpretation. This is where we need to get to know the pilgrims a little bit better because they didn't always see things the way we do now. We look back at them as forefathers and try to make them images of ourselves as America would become. But in many ways, they weren't. And so, for example, they were seeking religious liberty, if by that you mean the freedom to follow what they were convinced the Word of God was saying that they needed to do as a church. And in England, they did not have that freedom. It was illegal for them to do the specific things they thought the Bible said the church was supposed to do and be. But if by that you think that they thought anyone else should be able to show up with a different interpretation and establish a different church in the community, you're wrong. They didn't think that at all. They wanted to be free to follow the specific course that they were convinced um, the Bible said And when they established their community, a lot of people think that they were hypocrites because once they got there and established their community, they quickly made it illegal for anyone to set up any other church in the community or for anybody to practice any other religious perspective, even just meeting in their home and worshiping there privately. That was illegal in Plymouth. But that wasn't inconsistent. That was their entire worldview. (laughs) That is really the way they saw things. Because when they were seeking freedom, it was freedom from certain constraints on their vision, not a sort of general freedom that everyone would have. While we're on the subject, they also were not uh, overly focused on individual liberty the way we would see it today. Someone's right and privilege to define their own course. In fact, uh, I mean, they did, to be fair, establish a community with democratic, democratically elected leaders. They gave the people rights and privileges that they would not have had in a lot of other societies in the day. In some ways, you could argue there were certain steps in the direction of our modern ideals. But one, who had the right to vote was very different than today. Not just in the sense we would immediately say, oh, well, that's men versus women. No. Who was considered a free voting man is a much more complicated topic we don't have time to go into today. But it's, there were a lot of people on the Mayflower who did not have voting rights when they got there. There were a lot of men, working men, members of the community who didn't have voting rights when they got there. But if you did have voting rights, you were, you were, uh, it was illegal not to vote. <laughs> You had to show up and vote or you'd be fined. (laughs) And if the the voting populace picked you to serve in a public office, it was illegal not to serve, even if you didn't volunteer for the post. (laughs) If you got picked for governor, guess what? You're governor that year. (laughs) Or you'll be paying a huge fine through the teeth to to, to reject the election. Why? Because in their view, groups were more central than individuals. Not just any group, but specific spheres that God had ordained that made up the local community. Family, family units as a whole, church, those who were members of the local church, and civic community even if you weren't a member of the church or you were a single man who wasn't a member of any family, you still were bound to the community and the civic government around you. And that included an obligation to serve if you were chosen. Not a right or a privilege, an obligation, a duty to serve. They thought in terms of duties, not rights. And we have to understand that, that they have a very communal picture They were going there to live as a people of God, not as individually godly people. They wanted to be a people living together. And we may see pros and cons in their vision. We may allow their vision to challenge some of our values. We may also question some of their values on that. They have no authority over us. Their life is not scripture. But we ought to let the differences challenge us to think about some of the foundations that we've simply assumed from the culture we've we've grown up in. We may still conclude we've been right, but it's good to let the differences of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history and across other cultures, those who we are united to by faith, united to in Christ, who we will spend eternity with, let them poke at us a little bit. Let them make you uncomfortable. It's good. It's healthy. Think, read, pray, seek. And the pilgrims do that the more you study them. They do. Because to us, they're not just early versions of us Americans. They're weird. Or maybe we are. Probably the latter. (laughs) But they're very different. But there were some among the separatists who did have views of religious liberty, for example, as we do. Remember those Baptists I mentioned? Well, John Smith wrote in his 1612 uh, Confession... "'The magistrate is not by virtue of his office "'to meddle with religion or matters of conscience, "'to force or compel men to this or that form "'of religion, uh, of religious doctrine, "'but to leave Christian religion free "'to every man's conscience "'and to handle only civil transgressions, "'injuries and wrongs of man against man, "'in murder, adultery, theft, etc. "'For Christ only is the king and lawgiver "'of the church and conscience.'" And so we answer to Christ, not the civil government, on those matters was Smith's view, was the early Baptist view. The pilgrims did not agree with them on that. That was an area of disagreement. So those who we look to as our forefathers actually had the option available to them to agree with us on religious liberty. They, it's not they'd never thought of it. They heard it. They considered the arguments. They consciously rejected that option. We've got to realize when we remember these people that that is a reality, That is a truth about them. But there is something, if that's something that makes us uncomfortable, maybe there's something else about their their community that should inspire us, at least if we're looking to Scripture. I think we can all agree that there's something very true and something else about them. They were willing to uproot and leave England for Holland, Holland for America, to go anywhere, to be anywhere in order to serve God. And part of that was because they understood themselves not to ultimately be citizens of any country or kingdom of this world. They understood themselves to be, what do we always call them? Pilgrims. Why do we call them that? Because they called themselves that. To read from William Bradford, the man who a made a significant leader from the congregation who was their governor for most of the history of Plymouth Colony. He said, when he's talking about them leaving Leiden and heading for America, he said, uh, they left that goodly and pleasant city which had been their resting place near 12 years, but they knew they were pilgrims and looked not much on those things. But lift up their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country, and they quieted their spirits. Thomas Cushman, a deacon in the church, wrote, We are in all places strangers and pilgrims, travelers and sojourners, most properly having no dwelling but in this earthen tabernacle. Our dwelling is but a wandering, and our abiding but a fleeting, And in a word, our home is nowhere but in the heavens, and that house not made with hands, whose maker and builder is God, and to which all ascend that love the coming of our Lord Jesus. That's why they could leave everything behind. Now, where did they get that? Well, I'm going to read a few passages from Scripture, and I'm going to read them in the Geneva Bible the old English translation before the KJV that they would have been using. Um, actually, one that was produced, remember earlier when I mentioned Bloody Mary and the fleeing of the Puritans? Well, when they, they fled during their time in Europe, that's when they produced this translation. So this was very, all the, the, stu- the study notes, it was the first study Bible in, in the English language that next to the text, they had all these explanatory notes explaining everything. And the theology is richly Puritan. If you want to get the idea of what the Puritans believe, just get an old Geneva Bible and read it and read the notes, and you'll get a lot of how they understood the Scriptures. But so, here we go in, uh, in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. The Geneva Bible, it says, all these, talking about Hebrew 11, has gone through the examples from the Old Testament of all these men of faith who went before us, trusting in God, not seeing the promises to come. All these um, died in faith, And received not the promises, but saw them afar off, and believed them, and received them thankfully, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, and if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they had leisure to have returned. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly Wherefore God is not ashamed of them to be called their God, and hath prepared for them a city. When we read Bradford and Cushman's words, we can hear the very language of that echoing in what they said. Similarly, Cushman almost actually quoted words from 1 Corinthians 5:1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle be destroyed, we have a building given of God that is an house not made with hands but eternal in the heavens or 1st peter 2:11 dearly beloved i beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which fight against the soul this was the very idea that was driving them from leiden as pilgrims This isn't our home. We can uproot and leave here. Why? Because of the battle against fleshly lusts, worldly desires that they did not want to give into or their children to give into. The Geneva Bible study note on that verse elaborates a reason why we ought to live holily or in a holy manner. Love the old English, holily. Uh, A reason why we ought to live holily to wit Because we are citizens of heaven, and therefore we ought to live according to the laws not of this world, which is most corrupt, but of the heavenly city, although we be strangers in the world. So here I read from the very Bible out of which the pilgrims were reading and preaching and studying, and these were the things that drove them to understand that their connection to any place was loose. And fleeting, and ultimately to honor God, they would go anywhere and suffer anything if they just might be faithful to Him and His calling. And that is something that I hope is uncontroversial. And yet, how many of us, how many of us, if we're being honest, might be willing to compromise just a bit if we could stay in a place a little more comfortable than the desperate situation to which they were headed. So let's get there. We have got to go at a running pace at this point. But, uh, but so, they, had to, they had, to, had to make their plan. How do we get to the new world? We have a place in mind where we can go, live free and build our community, reach the lost, be a people of God. How do we do it? Well, the Dutch government actually offered to sponsor them as a colony. The Dutch were colonizing North America at that time and saw a potential benefit of sending this uh, English group under their flag to go do that. But they were concerned that going under the auspices of the Dutch Empire would end up long term leading to their colony just being populated by more of the same of what they already had in Leiden and they soon would find themselves in the same situation they were in before. They didn't want, if if they were going to do that, they would just stay in Leiden. They wanted this to be different, and so they rejected that and went the harder road to convince King James to let them go, representing the English flag. Now, the English, unlike the Dutch, were not officially, from a government standpoint, sponsoring colonies, but they had privatized, franchised the matter. So individual investors who thought they could make a profit starting a colony in the New World would do so. And so there were a group called the Merchant Adventurers. Now, by our modern definition of the word adventurer, it's ironic because these guys weren't actually going anywhere. They were sending other people on the adventure. Um, But here it would be more where we get the term like venture capitalism. They they were investors. Um, And so the Merchant Adventurers, they... uh, they saw a potential profit in this. And so they, they set up, they, they went ahead and sponsored them. As the day got closer to sale, they kept changing the terms in ways that were much more advantageous to the investors and much less advantageous to the pilgrims. But eventually they just found themselves in a position where they were stuck and had to take the terrible offer, went with it. And so there's a lot more to that story, but that's not urgent to our purposes today. So finally... They took the deal. The merchant adventurers arranged the Mayflower for them to sail over on. They bought their own smaller ship called the Speedwell, jumped on it from Holland, sailed over to England to meet up with the Mayflower. The merchant adventurers had decided to bring in other people, make the colony a little bit bigger, especially since at the last minute half the Leiden congregation had to back out and wouldn't be able to move there till later. So they added some more people to the group. But these people were not separatists of one faith with the Plymouth Pilgrims, and that led to some consternation and tension. Now, they were not sort of wild secularists. The conflicts between them were going to end up being things like whether it's okay to celebrate Christmas, um, or whether playing an early version of what we would today call cricket is moral or not. Uh, they, the, the, the other people joining them were largely also practicing Christians, but were not separatists. And so there was some tension between the groups coming together. Um, but they gathered together nonetheless, got on their two boats, set sail for what was supposed to be Virginia. That's not where they made it. But set sail. But as they were heading out, all of a sudden the speed well started leaking. I had to turn back, make repairs, tried to sail again, leaking again, turned back, had to abandon the speed well and pile as many as they could into just the Mayflower. wasn't meant to carry everybody. Some people had to stay behind who were supposed to be there. But they all loaded up and went, as many as they could, now crammed into one boat, way more people that are supposed to be there. The trip had to be awful. And what's worse, because of weather conditions, they averaged about two miles an hour for the trip, the entire trip, across the Atlantic, from Europe to North America. You can only imagine, and none of these people were experienced seafarers. Everyone was sick. People died en route. One guy in the congregation should have died, went up. Uh, went up uh, above board. He was supposed to stay below deck, came up top when he wasn't supposed to. A squall knocked him over. He should have been swept out to sea, but he caught hold of a rope from one of the sails dangling back behind the ship and held on, and they were able to pull him forward. God's providence saved that man. <laughs> um, and, and so they, they made their way across, but... At that time, they couldn't calculate longitude and latitude as well as they can now, and they accidentally landed much further north in Massachusetts. This led to some problems. One, they legally weren't allowed to start a colony there. They hadn't been given permission to settle there. So at first they tried to make it down the coast and get to Virginia, but winter's already setting in. They're much later in the year than they were supposed to get there uh, because of the Speedwell incident, which by the way turned out to be sabotage. When they had refitted fitted the ship, they had uh, put masts on that were too large so that when the ship went, whenever it went full sail, it would put too much pressure on the ship and bend the boards apart to let water in so you could never repair it. Once they once the they, the Speedwell uh, got left behind, then they and uh, there's a lot of speculation that it was actually the Dutch government, embittered by their rejection of them using them for their colonization efforts, that paid off the uh, the sabotage there. But be that as it may, because the, the Speedwell was outfitted in, in Holland, but those who could make it made it on the Mayflower. They're late in the year. They finally end up, they can't make it down the coast. Too many dunes, too much to sail around. It's not mapped well. So they finally decide, look, we just got to settle here and we'll get permission as soon as we can. Uh, and so they, they found a spot. Um, after much searching, it was kind of a terrible setup. The water was so shallow in the bay leading up to where they were building their settlement that the ship couldn't come all the way in. Most of them lived on the ship all winter and so coming to and fro from, the, uh, um, from the, the settlement they were starting, you had to wade through the water, through freezing winter water back and forth for over a mile to and from the boat anytime they wanted to go to shore to do anything. Not surprisingly, illness was bad that winter. Um, illness swept through. They lost over half their population. Um, the, uh, and uh, the, for whatever reason, the illness killed far more, um, rate-wise, killed far more women than men and far more old than, uh, old than young. And when I say old, I don't mean elderly. I mean older working men, more fathers than children, we'll say. Um, And so you had a lot of the people left were younger. And a lot of the the mothers, the women, were gone. It was a heartbreaking time. It was a shattering time. It was was difficult. But they endured. And we're going to get in just a minute to why they endured That's where we're going to close. But first, I want to get through the rest of the story real quick and very quick summary. While they were there early in that winter, they found some uh, storage areas, buried storage areas for what we would today call corn, maize, the grain of the new world that's not native to the old world. But they found these these stashes of grain and uh, they borrowed them. Uh, they, 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 they took them with the intention of repaying. Of course, you're taking the winter and spring stores of a people who now may not survive. With There's a lot of, of moral difficulty with this decision. But you could argue that the only reason that they survived was making this decision. They, they took it and they didn't eat it all. They saved a lot of the seeds reasoning actually quite accurately that whatever crops the Native Americans were growing here would probably be better adapted to surviving here than the crops that they brought over with them to plant from Europe. Previous British colonies had not had that insight and by depending solely on British crops had not fared nearly as well. That decision was huge in their success. And later on, it's worth noting they did have the opportunity to enter into diplomatic relations with the tribe that they took that from, and they did reimburse them. Um, they they did make that right. But lest I then leave them as roughly moral heroes, um, it should also be noted that while they were pilfering and taking grain, that you could argue because of starvation, you know, you could understand where they were coming from. They also looted tombs and just took some valuables out of those that had nothing to do with surviving, uh, that they just saw that seemed valuable that were buried with some of the, the bodies of the tribes there. And there's really no justification for that at all. Um, so, yeah, mistakes were made. Um, sins were committed. So they, But they survived that winter. In an odd irony, they survived it in part because so many died of illness, that the stores, storage, their stores of food that otherwise would have run out, were able to last them long enough. Because so many people died, they had fewer mouths to feed. Um, and so, they made it through, they planted, they began entering into diplomatic relations with the tribes around them. This is a huge summary, there's so much more complexity to this. And this is another way in which there's something very unique about the, the, the Plymouth colony, especially in its earliest decades. Um, this changed as it got bigger and as other rival colonies started coming up that they were economically competing with. And, but in these early days, they looked at the tribes around them as sovereign nations to have diplomatic relationships with. They entered into trade, into mutual defense treaties with them which both sides upheld. Um, they they ended in, entered into largely very constructive relationships with the peoples around them. Now, one of the reasons that was possible was a strange providence in that there were, was the famous man Squanto we hear about. Tisquantum. Very ironic in that uh, the name Tisquantum that he was given, you'll hear scholars speculate about it, we honestly don't know why he was named this. But Squantum was, the, uh, was the, the natives of that area, their supernatural being of darkness and destruction. When we celebrate Squanto every year, we don't realize that we're celebrating a guy who was named Satan. Uh <laughs> Um, That doesn't necessarily have to reflect on his character, but that is who he was named after. Um, Possibly he took the name on himself. Some scholars have argued that um, he he, uh, may have been named that by the rival tribe he was living among. Why was he living among a rival tribe? Well, he had been taken a slave by earlier European expeditions and taken back to Spain as a slave. He lived there for a while until he ended up owned in England, until finally he was brought back on an expedition and able to escape back until when he got to his people and found that they had been completely decimated by a plague the symptoms that are described have led some scholars to think that it was the bubonic plague because its lesions are described and things like that. some european disease had been brought over and wiped out his whole people He later discovered a few surviving people here and there, scattered among other other tribes, but for the most part, his entire civilization was gone. His people were no more, they ceased to exist. And so, he was now living among a, a rival tribe as their prisoner. But, because of his time in England, he spoke fluent English. And so, he became a valuable asset to both sides. Yet he was an alien among both sides. There's a lot of intrigue in things he tries to play both sides against each other for his own, uh, um, his own benefit, his own ends. He's not a perfect man and just a, a completely selfless, friendly character like in the elementary school pageants. But the colony would unlikely have, have survived without him. And they do frequently in their writings, especially William Bradford, who loved Squanto, protected Squanto even after Squanto had betrayed him Uh, and and attempted to uh, sell him out and have the the colonists go to war with their allies, Um, orchestrate. uh, We won't get into the whole story, but even after that, Bradford protected him, loved the man, and believed that even with all the difficulties and challenges that came with him, that God, had, in his kind providence, had provided that for them so that they would have an interpreter fluent in both languages. There were a few other Um, natives that also helped who had picked up some English from fishermen and traders and things but for the most part Squanto, he was the most fluent they had and he interpreted and allowed them to make all these alliances treaties, diplomatic relationships allowed them to survive and so because of all this after their first harvest they have this celebration the Native Americans come and join them Messisoit the, the sachem, the, the chief who, had, who had, was first to enter into this uh, relationship with them and lead the other tribes to do the same, brought his 90 men, as mentioned in there, and they did feast together in celebration. But it wasn't a Thanksgiving because the pilgrims had a specific idea of what a Thanksgiving was, and this wasn't it. But it was a celebration. And when they were rejoicing, they were rejoicing in God because nothing was secular to the pilgrims. We have this strict secular sacred dichotomy. They did not. Everything was sacred to them. This was a religious act, this was an act of gratitude to God. But it was not a thanksgiving. The first thanksgiving comes two years later. You see, things stayed hard. Right after that celebration, we brought in our harvest. All is well. This winter won't be like the last one. Another, sup- another ship came, bringing no supplies, just lots more people. All of a sudden, that harvest isn't going to last you anymore. Everything they just got done celebrating. Oh no. <laughs> it was hard, again. But they made it through that next winter. And then they made it through the next. But then... In 1623, when they were planting their, 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 their next harvest there, or planting their, their next, yeah, their, their next uh, season, there was a huge drought. All the cornfields were wilting over, beginning to die. There's nothing they could do. And so they called for a day of fasting and humiliation. What's that? I'm glad you asked. You see, the pilgrims didn't believe in regular annual holidays. None. Not Easter, not Christmas, none of it. They rejected all of that um, under what has come to be called the regulative principle. The idea that if scripture doesn't say to do something in worship, then you don't do it. And so scripture never says to celebrate Christmas, don't celebrate Christmas. Scripture never says to celebrate an annual Easter, don't celebrate an annual Easter. Their only regular holiday was the weekly Lord's Day. A break from work, a time to come worship together, it was a time of of celebration and honoring God. It was a holy day, it was a holiday. Not all civilizations gave you one day a week off of work. This was a, a, a holy day to them. Did they have a holiday? Yes, the Lord's Day. But they also had what they called providential holidays. They were not regular. You didn't do them every year. You didn't do them all the time. You did them in response to your circumstances. So when things were really hard and tough, or when you were faced with a difficult decision, when a time of adversity was before you, or when you really needed God's help with something, you would call for a time of fasting and humiliation where you would come together in great, solemn worship, crying out to God and begging him to deliver you. Obviously, fasting from food and begging God for his help. On the flip side, when God had done something good for you, you were not ungrateful for that. You would call for a holy day consecrated to thanksgiving, to gathering together to thank God for what he's done. To, wor- to worship God in thanksgiving. In some ways, these looked the same. In both cases, you'd gather at the church and spend hours singing, praise, pra- singing praises, singing psalms, praying, and listening to the word preached. The topic was just different. But on days of thanksgiving, after all of that, descriptions do say that they would then go back to their homes and gather in their homes for times of merriment. So in other words, they would be celebrating around food. <laughs> food and drink, and enjoying one another. And so there was some of the aspect of what we think of as Thanksgiving, the meal, the table time, food and drink, and making merry together. But this is where the the first Thanksgiving came in. The first Thanksgiving came in when uh, after this time of fasting and humiliation in the middle of this drought, they gathered. And of course, that day, Clear blue skies, not a cloud in the sky, sun beating down on their crops, and they're in the church crying out to God to deliver them. And that very day, the sky was covered in clouds. Rain poured down from the sky, and it rained for days, giving the crops all the water they needed, saved their crop, and they brought in enough. To survive the winter to come. So they had had dropped their work and gathered together to cry out to God, save us, God, from this drought. Turn Turn your hostile, the weight of your hostile hand that you've put on us in this drought, because they believed the drought was God's sovereign work. And so God can remove it. And they cried out to him: God, take this from us, deliver us, forgive us of our sins. Restore us to right fellowship with you and save us from this drought. And God did just that. And so after that, they declared the first thanksgiving in America, at least by the pilgrims. There may have been other Christians in other parts of America that celebrated similar thanksgivings at previous times. But in this colony, this was their first thanksgiving by their perspective of what a thanksgiving was. And so they celebrated that. Now, did they celebrate it again on the same day the next year? No. At other times when God did good for them, they called for times of thanksgiving or times of fasting and humiliation. But over time, a tradition did develop by the end of the time of Plymouth Colony's existence before it got absorbed into the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um... And a tradition had developed among third, fourth, or second, third generation pilgrims, where they would call for a day of fasting and humiliation every uh, springtime, before the harvest or before planting and growing and all of that. At the beginning of the agricultural cycle, you would have a day of fasting and humiliation, and every harvest season, you would have a day of Thanksgiving. The Springtime fasting and humiliation never caught on. Um, But fall thanksgivings caught on in a lot of places in New England. And that tradition continued on. And that's part of how we got Thanksgiving today. But it actually, the pilgrim's idea of it being providential continued for a long time. The first national um, Thanksgiving Day called for all the colonies to do one together. It was uh, during the Revolutionary War, the Continental Congress called for it. Listen to the language and you'll hear the theology of the pilgrims ringing out and them calling for this special day of thanksgiving even amidst, amidst their conflict. So, it, so November 1st, so hey, November one, just like us. They weren't all like that. But 1777, it is therefore recommended to the legislative or executive powers of these United States to set apart Thursday, the eighth day, it was on a Thursday too, look at that, Uh, the the 18th day of December next, ah, they called for it on November, didn't celebrate it till December, sorry guys, Um, for solemn thanksgiving And praise. Now, would you say that our Thanksgiving that we celebrate today is solemn? This looked a little different back then. Solemn Thanksgiving and praise. That at one time and with one voice, the good people may express the grateful feelings of their hearts and consecrate themselves to the service of their divine benefactor, and that together with their sincere acknowledgments and offerings, they may join the penitent confession of their manifold sins. Can you imagine Congress calling for that today? Uh whereby they had forfeited every favor and their humble, earnest supplication that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ mercifully to forgive and blot them out of remembrance. There's the call for the first national thanksgiving. That was done throughout the Civil War, but not every year and not always at the same time. Or not the Civil War, the Revolutionary War. George Washington called for thanksgivings at several points during his presidency. Once in February, though, so it's not, there was no set time of year at that time. Um, uh, John Adams actually called for days of fasting and humiliation for the whole nation. And so this Puritan pilgrim theology actually continued to influence the practice of America during its early years a lot. <laughs> And that, over time, would become the holiday that would eventually be declared a na- uh, an official national holiday by FDR in the 1940s. Ironically, the Delano family, Frank and Delano Roosevelt, the Delano family, uh, was on, uh, came to America on that second ship I mentioned to the Pilgrim Colony. Remember the one that came right after the day we call the first Thanksgiving that isn't really, when they they celebrated the harvest and then all those extra people came, they had to feed that winter? Yeah, the Delanos were on there. And so FDR was of Pilgrim stock and then declared Thanksgiving an official annual holiday, which his Pilgrim ancestors would have hated, (laughs) but codified the Thanksgiving holiday at that point. And if you go read his, I won't read it today for time's sake, but if you go read his announcement, the theology's a lot shallower, but it still maintains, still maintains the idea that the purpose of the Thanksgiving holiday, even when it was declared in 1941, is specifically to give gratitude to God. Not to be thankful in general to other people or things in our life. It's specifically about giving gratitude to God. Even in 1941, And it it encourages people to gather not only in their homes but also in their places of worship. So the idea of church worship being a part of Thanksgiving was still a part of that in 1941. Times have changed a lot. Um, but So that's in short where our Thanksgiving holiday comes from. And it comes back to this idea that we ought to be very attentive to the providence of God, His hand in all things, His sovereign control, and never take for granted the good things that happen to us. If a harvest is good, if something turns in our favor, if our circumstances are well, we ought always, always to stop and give thanks to God. Why? Because He is in control. If you go read the pilgrim's writings you'll find that they're constantly littered with the phrase, and it pleased the Lord for this to happen. And it pleased the Lord for that to happen, whether good or bad. The idea is that God was in control of all of their circumstances. And so it might please the Lord to withhold the rain from you, or it might please the Lord to give it to you. But in all things, it is God's good pleasure He is in control. And that, I said, is what I would get back to. That is how they got through those dark, early winters. That is how they coped with the, with the death around them, with, with the, the so many threats to their lives hanging over them at every moment. That is how they survived. And even secular historians that I've read in preparing for this talk all have to acknowledge That the faith of the pilgrims is part of what made them uniquely, gave them a unique survivability that previous British colonies did not have, ones that didn't make it before them. They endured, they persisted, and made it through in part, even the secularists have to acknowledge, because of their faith. And I would say it's not just this sort of psychological support that their faith gave them, but it's because their faith was right. God is in control. And so even in our darkest days, even in our hardest times, even when the world is set against us, we can look to God and be thankful and know nothing escapes His His will. And in the end, that's a comfort because we know we serve a good God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Our darkest times will ultimately be for for our eternal benefit. We can trust that. We can know that just as the pilgrims did. And if you take nothing else away from this talk, I hope as they did, you can rest in that. We serve a mighty, glorious God who is also good and compassionate. He will see us through. And for that, I don't care what's happening. Let's give thanks. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so, so very much. God, you are a good and gracious and glorious God. God, we love you so very much. God, may we trust all the more in your sovereign hand. May we trust in you as our glorious king and may we always remember that this world as it is today, unredeemed, sick with sin, that this world is not our home. Our home is your kingdom to come. May we look forward to that city that will never perish, and may we live as pilgrims and sojourners, as foreigners, this side of eternity, putting your law and your values above all the standards of men, whatever that may cost us, because we know in the end, You will fulfill all your promises. God, we love you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.